This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Mission Show. I'm Andy. Uh, we've got a big show coming up tonight. I've got Vivian on the line. Tell us all about it. Can you hear me, Viv? Yes, hi, Andy. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. It's pouring with rain here in Sydney, but I'm oh. warm inside. Nice. Well, yeah, it's quite. It's not bad down here today. Oh. There's a bit of sunshine. It's like we're in different countries. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, I'd like to say salut, Babette, and salut, Blondine, because we've got two listeners in Paris tonight. Ah, and awesome. Salut, also, Babette. Yeah, salut, Babette. I know she always listens, and or maybe she'll get the podcast, but... Before we start, I'd also like to give a cheerio to um, three people who are facing court tomorrow. Um, we've interviewed one of them, Bev Smiles, and the other two are called Stephanie Luke and Bruce Hughes, and they're facing court because they stood outside the Wilpenjong coal mine. That's all they did, just stood on the yep. road outside and had a big banner saying, enough is enough. And that's... And we've got new anti-protest laws in New South Wales, and they're, they're the first case that's being tested now that we've got those new laws, and they could face seven years in jail Ooh. or $5,000 each in fines. So I hope listeners yeah. will, you know, do something. Right, the person I would write to is the Premier of New South Wales, and her name's Gladys Berejiklian. No worries, I'll mention that at the end as yeah. well. Yeah, just fancy that. Enough is enough. I think a lot of us feel enough is enough with the coal and gas. Anyway, tonight's show is about um, carbon rations in a way and sort of big picture thinking. And I've got two really powerful thinkers from England. I pre-recorded these interviews. Tina Fawcett's in um, Oxford. And she was part of a British government inquiry into carbon rations. They just, the British government will look into the feasibility of it. You know, they'd mm -hmm. rationed... Um, petrol, for example, in the Second World War, and it's a big thing to roll it out, but it is a way of making sure everyone gets enough of yeah. a commodity and, and that you don't over, overdose on things. You don't, ex you know, <laughs> do it excessively. Yeah. And it's like a Mikey card that tells you how much you've got left each month of your carbon allowance. That's a good idea. Do you, do you think you could manage on that? Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say so. Um, Try to keep to public transport as much as I can, and yeah. you know I like to keep everything local. Well, that would be—that's <laughs> right, and it would having the card would make you, you know, do it. As and well. she said that, but then the British government said, "Well, this is an idea before its time. You know, we, we're not going to do it just yet." But I, I think we should still have this. It's a, it's a concept that it's, she calls it carbon allowances rather than carbon rations, and you know, we. Um. We still need to get the carbon down, especially Australians with a much bigger carbon yeah. footprint, say, than Europeans. Anyway, yeah. so she talks about that. And then the other person I spoke to is George Monbiot. Now, listeners might know his writing from The Guardian. Uh, he has been a long-time, you know, person racking his brains about uh, the climate challenge. It's a huge thing. And, and he he's thinking very broadly now, and he thinks, actually, that carbon allowances wouldn't work. Uh, he says we can't do that. It's too shallow. We we don't work together as a society. We're not a community enough. We've all been sort of atomized by, you know, governments cutting back welfare services and all sorts of things. We all just 
you know, mm. dog eat dog really, and he thinks we need to reunify our society and our belief in um, working together. And um, he said we shouldn't we shouldn't just be on the back foot reacting to climate change. We should be on the front foot, you know, trying to build the society that that we really want. And his book is called Out of the Wreckage. And I'll just read a tiny little quote, which I think really captures what he he thinks. He says we've we've become you know we're suffering all this epidemic of depression and you know psychiatric diseases, illness and, and alienation in society, Western society anyway. And he said, the atomization we suffer has eroded our common sense of purpose and has sapped our belief that working together we can change life for the better. So people have stopped mm. believing that they can do something different. That's what he thinks. And I just would like to say to the listeners that I think our radio team is a terrific way fighting back against that. We don't, we don't feel alienated because we all work together. Mm. We don't get any pay for this. We all work long hours. You, Andy, you come in. You're always so reliable. Andy and I communicate before the show. He <laughs> Thanks, Vivian. No, yeah, man, we um, are. We work as a team. That's yeah, right. We do. And Roger's behind the scenes doing the podcast. And Kurt helps. And Kurt always pre- is also preparing interviews for the next few shows. And Erin does her two shows. So we're a team. And we don't do it with, you know, it's on the smell of an oily rag, really. We don't mm. even see each other very much because I'm in Sydney and we're all in different places but we work together and I, I love doing that it's, it's you know we do yeah. something quite good with I think so. It's always you always find the most amazing stories, and it is, and it's fun to do it. Even though we do put a lot of work in, so I thought, well, listeners, if you if you are thinking about after Monbiot's talk, especially that he's the second one, um, maybe you'd like to give some money to the radio song. Just send us ten dollars. Time, or, isn't it? Yeah, radio song starting next week, I think, and the following weeks. You just have to ring up the station. Andy will remind you of the number at the end of the show, but no just ring up the station and offer some money to keep the station going because we are really independent and we try to put encouraging thoughts out there, you know, healthy thoughts yeah. rather than the kind of culture that we've got that makes people feel desperate. Ah, sounds really good, Vivian. I'll yeah. play the first file. I'll play the first one. Oh, and just listeners, also the... The one about with uh, Monbio was by Skype, and I had a lot of trouble. I had to start again a few times, and he was incredibly nice and patient. But I kept getting this poor connection. I said, "Can I try again?" I spent you know, hours doing that interview, which is only twenty minutes, but I spent more than an hour trying to get the get it. So it's a little bit crackly because he's in England, and the Skype connection just isn't perfect to listen to. But please listen because he's a really profound thinker, George Monbio. He's you know. He's a, advanced thinker so um, I hope you enjoy the program and give us some feedback so thanks Andy. No worries, thank you Vivian Thanks. and I hope you enjoy, this is Tina Fawcett um, Dr Tina Fawcett has pursued the topic of personal carbon allowances in many articles and in the book The Suicidal Planet The UK Government Committee which looked into it found that carbon rationing could become essential but the government said it was an idea before its time but how would it work? Would it be forever? And would it hurt? So we have to think about the reasons that we have to do this. And um, we've got someone from Oxford University here. So Dr. Fawcett is here by Skype. And I'd like to welcome you to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, Tina. Thank you. Uh, tell us what the weather's like over there. 
The weather, um, it's um, slightly overcast and, and windy, but not too cold, about 10 degrees. Oh, we're up to about 40 here. It's very hot. Yeah, so what a contrast. Um, I, I would like more people to become carbon literate, you know, to share the burden of climate change that a lot of people do feel, but not everyone. And I think that it would spark innovation and people would demand rapid decarbonisation from each other as well as from our leaders. So tell us, why do you like the idea of carbon rations and allowances? Well, I think I think there's two main reasons, really. One is it focuses us very much on what our global carbon budget is, and it sets a cap, and it says that's got to reduce year on year, I mean, as international negotiations are doing. But this is a mechanism that brings it right down to the personal level. Um, and so it sort of connects us with this global issue in a very tangible way. The second thing I really like about it is that it is, it's equitable. I mean, you can argue about um, different interpretations of equity, but what it says is everybody's got an equal right to emit carbon emissions within this budget. And so it's not saying if you're rich, you necessarily can, you know, as, as of right, can emit a lot more. If you're poor, you just have to emit a lot less. It's starting off by saying everybody's got the the same rights to this sort of scarce resource of the amount of carbon we can still emit and, and live within a safe planet. So th- those are the two key things, really, the, the effectiveness of the decreasing cap, making it personal and, well, I suppose that's three things, and, yeah. and making it equitable. Yeah, tell us how it works. Okay, so how it would work is it would cover, it wouldn't cover all the carbon in the economy for people, or the simplest version is it would cover your personal travel, so possibly not by pers- public transport, but certainly by, by car. Um, so you, um, it would cover your home energy use and it would cover flying. So you would have uh, an annual amount of, of carbon credits or whatever they get called in your account. And when you paid for your petrol or diesel at the petrol station or when you paid your electricity bill, you'd have to have carbon credits deducted from your account as well as the money. Um, if you didn't have any carbon credits left, if you'd already, um, you know, bought a lot of energy that year or had a sort of overseas flight or, or two, um, you would be able to buy additional carbon credits on the market for, from people who sold them who didn't need all of them. It's not really a parallel currency, but it's a little bit like that in that you have to think about both, both the money and whether you've got any carbon allowances left to spend that year and if not are you prepared to pay the price to get more well at the moment i think it's not very easy to find out what the carbon content of an activity is for example just recently i took a ferry from the australian mainland to tasmania and not even the captain could tell me what the carbon footprint of that ticket was and i wonder do you think we need to start with that information on every ticket and on every petrol bowser Yes, I think I think that's a very good idea. People often talk about how if you were going to bring this idea in, first people have to understand what the impacts of their choices are, where carbon, the, the sort of big carbon emissions from their everyday choices are coming. So certainly having carbon on, yeah, that's right, at, at petrol stations, at, at filling stations, having carbon on your energy bill when you get your energy bill at home, having carbon on your airline ticket. And, and, and some of those things happen now. So quite a lot of airlines will sell you a carbon offset which is kind of a different story I guess but there are some forms of energy are quite easy to translate into carbon but I think you're right particularly ferries are 
it was very difficult actually to work out mm. what well, the carbon impact is. Well, I'm going to follow that story with that captain because, you know, he said he would um, talk to me about it, but I, I just think that we must be able to get on top of that sort of calculation. It's not rocket science, surely. Um, look, about carbon allowances, do you envisage like a trial period when people would get a free carbon allowance or an app on their phone and their house and travel carbon would be clearly displayed and then after that year they would not be able to buy more than their the average amount unless they paid more and then it would ratchet down the next year and ratchet down so that eventually you'd be having a very small carbon allowance. Is that how? Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think you've described it extremely well. That's the sort of thing we would imagine, that there would be to be a learning period with no penalties for everybody, where everybody can get the hang of what is this new system, what does it mean to me, what choices am I going to make? And then you would gradually bring in, you know, keep moving the budget down year on year, because after all, that's the point of the scheme, is to reduce our carbon emissions as a society. Mm. Um, And we need to do that by some mechanism, and this is one way to do it. It's not the only way, but I think it's quite a an important idea to discuss. It is an important idea to discuss, but I can't get anyone to discuss it because I think they think that pandemonium would break out if they couldn't do the things that they now are very accustomed to doing. Even though they say they care about climate change, they really don't want to forswear anything. No, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? But, you know, we all, well, not we all, but if you look at public opinion surveys, most people are in favour of doing something about climate change. It doesn't mean they're in favour of not, you know, making that rather nice overseas trip that they wanted to make. And it's, you know, it's a challenge to all of us to sort of have to reconcile our ideas and our hopes for the future with our current behaviour. On the other hand, I mean, some some things you can change really easily and reduce your carbon emissions, particularly on the home energy side. There's lots of technologies. There's lots of changes in decisions about what temperature you set your air conditioning or your heating at that can actually make quite a big difference with a very small impact on your lifestyle. If anything, your lifestyle is going to be better in a more efficient home because it's going to be warmer, less damp, you know, just a more pleasant place to live. So there are some win-wins out there as well as the more tricky ones where actually you will have to lose something if you're living a lower carbon lifestyle. That's good. But what about, there's a problem of equity here, of course. How would you smooth out this system for people who are renting or cannot afford to insulate their home or people who need to drive a lot for their work or for their other responsibilities, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think that is... That is that is challenging, and there's some um, researchers in in the UK. The Centre for Sustainable Energy did a did quite an extensive modelling exercise, looking at people's carbon emissions across transport and housing by income group and by location, and looked at how many what they called were sort of low income losers there would be under a system of um, equal allowances. And what you find is most low income people do better because their emissions are lower it's the higher income people tend to have higher emissions on average but of course not everybody is average and they found about 20% of the lowest the the people with the 30% of lowest incomes in the UK would actually lose out under this system in other words their carbon emissions are currently higher than what their allowance would be so so though and that's usually because they're living as you said rurally they they've got to travel further there aren't public transport options for them or they're living in um uninsulated homes that are hard to heat and so naturally they have a higher carbon footprint even if they're not very warm because all their their heat is going out of the walls and the and the roof so i think there isn't a simple answer to that i think that the real answer is that 
the sort of infrastructure that the government provides on, and society provides enabling people to make lower carbon choices. Um, and that's easiest in housing. Um, and it's more difficult in transport, I think. Right. Well, is it true that the British government committee who looked into the carbon allowance scheme decided that it was an idea before its time? And I'd like to know, what were their main objections? Yes, it, that's right. It got quite a lot of political attention very early in its life as an idea when there was really very little research base. So they commissioned some research from various people and that's right. Although they found a lot good to say about the idea, their two main um, objections they had was one, they said it wouldn't be publicly ac- public acceptability they were concerned about, and the second one was what it would cost. Now, to speak about public acceptability, there's been quite a lot of studies, most of them quite small, on, on what people think of this as an idea. And it, it depends what you compare it with, really. If you compare it with doing nothing, people would rather do nothing. If you compare it with something like a carbon tax, generally people would prefer a personal carbon allowance. So it's all about how you frame the questions, really. Um, it's not to say there would be no objections. Of course there would, but it's it's what you compare it with. What are your other choices? Um, on cost, um, yeah, I mean, the government came up with a figure. Some other researchers came up with a figure that was half of that. As we know, I mean, those were 10 years ago. We've all got a lot more used to sort of all sorts of mobile apps, mobile banking, all sorts of sort of information exchange systems and really under personal carbon trading you're exchanging very small amounts of information. It's only carbon when you pay bills or buy air travel or buy petrol or diesel. So I don't think the costs are a main issue. I think it's probably the politics, the public acceptability and what people think about equity that are the main issues. Yeah, well I think um, one of the elements in the politics, at least in Australia, where our government's constantly getting into power every time, praying for jobs and growth, more growth, more jobs, everything has to be consumed, you know, where we are praised for being consumers. And I think there's a belief that if you suppress demand in the economy on anything, transport or overseas flights, tourism or um, you know, even heating and cooling the house, that the economy will stagnate or collapse and people feel that they're actually doing a good thing by flying away on a holiday because they're boosting local economies and, and there's this moral sort of feeling that you have to keep pumping it out for the whole economy to support us. And I wonder if we fear economic collapse more than irreversible climate change or is there another way to look at it? Well, I mean, that, gosh, <laughs> I, mean, I think that in, in um, certainly a lot of my research is just on the sort of nuts and bolts of energy efficiency. And in that, there have been quite a lot of um, research trying to look at. So if you had a massive investment program to, to um, make housing, or housing in the UK is very inefficient, to make housing really efficient, what would that do to jobs and growth? And what the studies normally show is actually if you sort of transferred capital into making houses a lot more energy efficient, you would actually drive um, low carbon jobs. You create more jobs than you would destroy by spending the money on that rather than on something else. So to some extent, there's that that argument that if you're moving to a low carbon economy, yes, okay, some jobs will go, but new jobs will be created. And, you know, there's a balance there. And, and some, certainly some research says that's quite positive and it can be quite good, local, highly skilled jobs that are sort of meaningful work for people. So there's some there's definitely some positives there. Um, and I think, you know, the wider question about what, what does a low carbon economy look like? I mean, obviously, personal carbon trading or allowances is only a small part of that. And there are quite a lot of, you know, people doing serious work looking at this. There's, um, 
in the UK, there's a, a guy called Tim Jackson who's just written the second version of his book called Prosperity Without oh, Growth. Yeah. And that's, and uh, there's another woman um, called Kate Rayworth written something about donor economics, which is about sort of a just society living within um, climate, you know, global environmental limits. So sort of economists are trying to look at how do we restructure um, societies. I'm, I'm hopeful they'll come up with some clever answers. Yes, me too. Well, I think the language we use is important, and I noticed in your articles you played around with that, that rations have connotations of austerity and even wartime, and allowances sound fairer and make you think of people pulling together, but... Personal carbon trading makes people think of rich people buying up poor people's allowances so they can go on with a, a climate-damaging lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, the language is, is really quite interesting. And to be honest, we haven't done proper focus groups on it. What we've had is quite a lot of feedback from people. So the, the main work I've – or the first work I did on this was with a man called Mayor Hillman. And um, Mayor's in his 80s now and actually lived through the second – was a child in the Second World War. And so for him, when he started developing these ideas, he was using the language of rationing as something very positive, something that enabled everybody to get fed in the UK. It's based around food rationing. Um, because the government decided if it, if, it, if it didn't ration food, the unequal access meant, you know, some people would be starving. And so in his view, rationing was a very positive, socially just sort of word. Whereas other people, audiences, when we talked about our work, people were going, oh, you can't call it rationing. And to them, rationing was all about austerity. It was about doing without. And so it's a word that has different meanings for different people. So we decided to switch to allowances um, because we thought that sounded a bit more neutral. Um, and then... And then the language of trading came around because trading is part of it um, because because of because of the starting point because people have in the same sort of income groups have very very different carbon allowances. We needed to introduce trading and that became an umbrella term. And I, I yeah personally a little bit uncomfortable with it in some respects because as you say it directs it directs attention onto the trading aspect whereas I think the important bit is the allowance aspect. It's that. Mm. this is your share aspect mm. that I feel is more resonant than the, oh, and by the way, if you need a bit more or you don't need all of it, you can buy and sell. I think this is, we've got to start thinking about this, and that's why I think the personal carbon would get everybody thinking. You know, there's nothing like necessity being the mother of invention, and I really like the idea of a lot of people putting their thinking caps on about it as their daily aggravation about having just this allowance to work with would spur innovation or creativity and I wondered if you've got some examples where it has oh, that's interesting isn't it I mean I think you know I think we're all aware at the moment there's quite a lot of um, technological innovation around particularly on renewable electricity so solar PV I know that's quite big in Australia as believe it or not it's actually quite big in the UK as well well we're very much upping our amount of electricity we get from wind power so certainly on the supply side there are sort of hopeful hopeful things happening I think We'd also be thinking about things like social innovation. So, for example, um, bike share schemes and city bike schemes in Britain and, well, across Europe, those are, you know, really taking off and giving people active modes of transport is, you know, is clearly good for people's health. It's good for all sorts of reasons and it's also low carbon. I think, you know, as, as you said, if people were all operating within a budget or they were trying to stay within their budget because they didn't want to face excess costs and it became the social norm of, you know, you take pride in living within your budget then you would be looking at say different forms of holiday so maybe holidays nearer to home that were nevertheless exciting and interesting for people and you'd expect providers to come up with those you might expect more sort of car sharing type schemes you might expect public transport to be 
a bit more attractive to people and more investment to go into that because people will be looking for alternatives. So I think, and all sorts of, I don't know, perhaps new services. You've got some sort of carbon doctor that comes into your home and helps you sort of spot the obvious things where without investing very much, you can improve, you know, you can reduce your carbon emissions. So I, like you said, I would expect, I mean, I, you know, I'm an academic, I'm not an entrepreneur, but you'd expect all sorts of people, if there's a new opportunity opening up, all sorts of people would come in and help us live within our carbon budget. As an academic, I imagine you have plenty of people to talk to along the same lines or like-minded people, but do you find in your life, just in your general life, uh, that it's a rather lonely thing to be worried about climate change? Well, I, I mean, I difficult isn't it because I sit in a bit of a bubble so I work somewhere called the Environmental Change Institute so of course you know that it's one of the biggest environmental changes that everybody's interested in I mean I mean just locally our politics are fairly green in Oxford so probably meet less sort of climate skepticism or less resistance than you would in other sort of local areas that's just you know makes it a comfortable you know probably too comfortable a place to work so so quite privileged from that point of view but nevertheless it doesn't mean we're all doing the things that we really ought to do and it doesn't mean we're taking the more radical steps that we ought to take because mm. you know as we all know nothing's happening happening fast enough and we probably still haven't really grasped what it is we need to do and and how fast we need to do it that's right and like that's my my well the focus for climate activists in australia is all on the big things you know phasing out coal-fired power stations and stopping new coal. We've got a big one here at the Galilee Basin with Adani. Stop Adani is a huge, you know, taking a huge amount of activism to stop that. And gas exports, we're meant to be the Saudi Arabia of gas in Australia. And we're trying to phase in wind and solar energy, but it's still only 17% of our total energy mix at the moment. And many is coming out of, uh, many examples of that have been coming out of community initiatives. So, there's a big appetite to do something, I think, at a personal level because people are exasperated by government. They, they, they trusted in government. They didn't have much experience before and they thought government would take care of this big new problem, but in fact governments, uh, it's just toxic for them. It's just political suicide to take on any big you know, climate action. Uh, at least here it is. And so we have all these little things like bike paths and uh, solar-powered roofs, but I think we need everyone to be thinking about it, be thinking about decarbonisation and what it involves and the scale of the transition to clean energy is staggering. So I'd like to know, just to finish from you, how easy would it be to administer carbon restrictions? I know there was quite a big bureaucracy in the wartime to do the, car, the other sort of rationing, petrol and food rationing. It was a, quite a big bureaucracy to make sure it happened. Um, and make sure it was fair. But do you think it would be a big deal to implement this? No, I, I think the actual implementation shouldn't be too difficult. I mean, the, the sorts of, I mean, cost is one way of understanding what a big deal it is. And I think even the government's estimates, which people thought were a bit high, was the cost per year of running the, the system would be something like um, £30, which is €35. Euros. I don't know what that is in dollars but I mean it's it's not much basically it's, it's not you know I mean yes it's a sum of money but it's not a huge sum of money and the, the setup costs would be similar so and, you know and other people have said actually it could be half that cost so I, th I think that shows it it's not necessarily a, a huge 
a huge big deal because it's really quite a simple thing, particularly for the direct uses of energy where we know what the carbon impact is. It's a very simple thing. That that cost shouldn't be too much. And and how you would sort of manage it would basically be through the big energy supply companies. You know, they would have to make sure the numbers added up, the people who are selling us the energy and the airlines and maybe the ferry companies when we know what they're up to. Um, they're the ones who would have to sort of prove to government that they hadn't sold more than the set of allowances that they'd got in from people. So, you know, there's some, there's some cost to them. And, and, of course, we'd expect to see, as you mentioned earlier, sort of more information. So information on energy bills, information at petrol stations, information from airlines. But a lot of that's already happening. And certainly in the UK and across Europe with smart meters coming in, there's a lot more inf- sort of feedback and information is coming to customers about their home energy use and, in fact, business energy use as well. So there's all these opportunities for communicating with people that are already there that aren't a new cost. And the actual mechanics of managing the system, you know, compared with other things we do in society, are quite small. So I don't I don't see that as the problem. I think, as you know, as we talked about earlier, it's just, you know, having the social agreement that this is a really important priority and therefore we're going to put up with this minor inconvenience of having to pay in carbon and we're going to have to put up with the learning to understand what it means to live within a carbon budget and how to manage that. Because if we don't, the consequences for us are so much worse than putting up with, with that. And it's persuading people that it's a price worth paying we have got to do something this is a way of doing it fairly transparently and in a way that sort of engages everybody and i said at the beginning would this go on forever because it seems to me it would would only need to go on until we have decarbonized or is that naive no well i I mean that's you know that's that's what you'd hope wouldn't it that in i mean who knows 30 years time we're kind of a largely zero carbon energy system and and therefore that that's not necessary to have that sort of thing happening anymore. Yes. So yes, you're right. If it's successful, it should fade out because you know that the, we've 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 fixed the supply side as well as the demand side, and we don't need to do that anymore. Um, mm. Yeah. And then hopefully that consciousness would in would attack the things where there's embodied carbon, like meat, and you yes, then get I mean, onto I those other things. That's, that's right, with the idea being because something's happening on, on, on the, all the other side of the economy as well, that sort of relative prices or in some way will be changing. And so the sort of low-carbon foods and goods and services should be seem cheaper to consumers. And, you know, if we're living in a society where we've recognised that carbon's a major constraint and we've all got to deal with it, it's not only about the prices, is it? It's also going to be about, you know, social norms. It's going to be about individual morals and ethical responsibility all driving people to lower carbon choices and and driving suppliers to come up with a lot more lower carbon choices. Thank you very much, Tina. I think listeners will have lots of questions about that. Maybe, I hope, this uh, does get some impetus more, some more stimulus. You said at the moment there's not a lot of oomph going into it at the moment, but I hope in the future it does come back on the table as a good plan to refine and... um, that the idea will take spark somewhere. Okay, so that was Dr. Tina Fawcett. She's the acting deputy leader of the ECI Energy Program at Oxford University, which, as she said, is a bubble, but it sounds like a very pleasant bubble. And thank you for talking to us by Skype, Tina. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018, Fight for Your Mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for Your Mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. 
tell me what you're fighting for Because this DJ gonna keep you alive Forget about your troubles in your 9 to 5 With the rhythm of the pump, the pump, the pump This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show And I'm recording today in Sydney Courtesy of Radio Skid Row George Monbiot has written a book called Out of the Wreckage It's a new politics for an age of crisis Listeners may know Monbiot for his journalism in The Guardian and especially for his seminal book, Heat. In that, he looked at every sector of society and found where we could reduce carbon emissions. This is very much the territory of Beyond Zero Emissions, who this program is sponsored by, and you'll be happy to know, George, that we are just publishing now, just last month, a report on getting the emissions out of concrete, which I remember was one of the most intractable sectors you found. Could you tell us how it has been for you since heat? Has this work made you an outsider? Well, I've always seen myself as a bit of an outsider. It's been a huge struggle. Uh, For 30 years, I've been trying to persuade uh, particularly mainstream broadcasters to take these issues seriously. And, you know, not just the immediate issues of what we need to do about this sector or that sector, but the deep issues, such things as economic growth which is universally considered by the media to be a good thing, but is driving us over every environmental precipice going. And I get laughed at. I get sworn at. And some of them just give me a tirade of filthy language, which shows two things. You know, one, that they're all powerful and they can say what they like because they can't be held to account. They're deeply threatened by any question of change. And... You know, they exist basically to defend the status quo. And so it's been hard throughout and it's got harder recently. In the US, for example, I I don't have um, figures for my own country, the UK, but um, last year, 2016, climate change coverage dropped by 66%. And this was in a year of catastrophes, a whole load of climate disasters and a year where there is an election between someone who accepted the science of climate change and a climate change denier. So you would have thought maybe it would have featured. No, it didn't feature once in the cli- in, in the election coverage. There was no mention of climate change on either of the five major TV networks there. So, listen, it's always going to be a huge struggle. You know, the media is not our friend. The mainstream media is our enemy. There's a few exceptions. There's a few little pockets in which you can find some freedom. I'm very lucky at The Guardian that I can write exactly what I want. But by and large, it is highly inimical to any attempt to protect the world's people and its living systems. We often play a little sound grab of your voice telling us not to fly. I think it's one from one of your talks, and I'd like to, you know, about the love miles and all that. I'd like to hear more about this because part of the crisis we're facing is that now so many people can live a rich life. They can all fly, and it's a taboo subject to talk about. I can't get a conversation about it with practically anyone. And if citizens of the rich world had a ration on their flights, as advised, I think, by Tina Fawcett and people like that, there would be riots, wouldn't there? Well, look, I think we we can't do these things piecemeal. If we just say, right, we're going to land this restriction on you, without actually changing the underlying drivers and the underlying cultural and cognitive frames that we use to talk about the world, then we're really going to struggle to get anywhere at all. And the problem is we've been very reactive and oppositional, not just on climate change, but a whole series of issues. We've kind of allowed the destructive side to set the agenda 
and then we respond and say, oh, no, don't do that. Oh, that's bad. Let's stop that. Whereas actually what we've got to do is to set the agenda. We've got to create a framework of political, economic and environmental thought, of, of deep cultural thought, really, which then effectively forces the other side to respond to us so that we become positive and propositional and they're the ones who become reactive and oppositional. And so, you know, while we are saying, OK, within the existing system, a system predicated on perpetual growth on a finite planet, a system predicated on the um, what counts is present welfare of um, people who have money to spend, in other words, consumers, rather than the welfare either of humankind in general at the moment of future generations of the rest of the living world. You know, we're always going to be fighting against the tide, which is why my thinking has moved on to to trying to describe big narrative arcs, the, the big narrative framework, which allows us to reset our in- engagement with each other and with the rest of the world. And so my latest book has been about exactly that. We're talking to George Mombio, and his book is called Out of the Wreckage. And I think George, this is a first step, isn't it, of that new narrative? I think there's a lot more to be done to create yeah. this narrative. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I think the era of the grand personage writing the complete manifesto and handing it down to his adoring fans is long <laughs> past and, yes. and, and long should have passed. And, you know, like all the best things in life, this is something we've got to do together. You know, this is, this is a huge task and it needs a lot of minds and a lot of cooperation. To discharge. Well, that's in fact, I'll just have to do a little aside here. The reason I like the idea of carbon rations, and I think Professor um, Kevin Anderson said this, that the reason it's a good idea is it gets the middle class engaged. They would struggle with that and they would therefore be innovative. They'd think a way around it and maybe they would create that system change. I'm still very much in favour of um, you know, individual restrictions on, on the damage that we do, but this has to be underpinned by clearly articulated principles which in turn are underpinned clearly articulated values and all of those embedded within a new narrative framework because if we rely on policies alone um, we, we just don't change anything we we, um, we can fight over the policies we will lose because um, we haven't actually changed the fundamental framework of thought which governs our actions I see values as being the rock of all effective politics. Here are values. I can express them with clarity without embarrassment. And then from the bedrock of values derive our principles. Our principles are descriptions of the world as we would like it to be. And like our values, they, they are immutable. You know, they can persist centuries, thousands of years. They don't have to change. So, for instance, we can say we want to live in a world in which everyone has a fair share um, without breaching planetary boundaries. Now, that's a principle. Um, I'm just giving you an example here. That, that's, that's a principle which should be able to persist for generations. And then from the soil of, princi- from the soil of principles, which derives from the bedrock of values, we then grow the plants which are our policies. But the policies have to come and go because policies have to adapt to circumstance. But all we've got at the moment are policies. And so we grow our policies hydroponically. There's no soil. There's no bedrock because we haven't explained the principles and the values behind them. And more importantly still, we haven't embedded all that within a narrative framework which tells us who we are 
places us in the present and lights a path to a better future. And, and so that's what I've been working on. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I, we can't cover all the ideas, but I was really interested in that idea of the new narrative. And I think one of the things that a lot of people have said to me who, who are climate act- activists, they've said, well, the government's not going to help us. There's been this dawning re- revelation, really, to people that even though they're living in a democracy and they vote, the government isn't really responsive to them. They can do everything. And, and as a result, we are reactive. Rather than proposing something better, we're reactive. And um, in relation to climate change, for example, in Australia, we've got groups urging the banks to divest from coal and farmers to lock their gates against coal seam gas and solar citizens and wind alliance promoting renewables and nature conservation and great forest groups demanding to stop logging. But the government and the media just turn away, except if there's an election on, and the fossil fuel money seems to be buying a lot of policy. So you've talked about this propositional political story. How might that look yeah. in our case? Well, the first thing to say is I'm not, I don't want to diss any of those efforts you're talking about. They're all crucial. You know, we have that, but we have to fight the bad stuff within a framework of promoting the good stuff. And now one of the revelations which has struck me is that almost all political and religious transformations have been enacted with the help of what I call the restoration narrative framework. And you know, our minds are, are predisposed to hear stories. That's how we make sense of the world. We don't make sense of the world like scientists or mathematicians do by assessing the data and weighing up the, the reasoned case on either side. That's, that's simply not how our minds work, desirable as that might be. The world is too complicated for that. So we use narrative as a shortcut. And there, and there are particular narratives which our minds are innately disposed to hear particular structures and one of these is the rest- restoration story and it says into disorder caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the good of humanity the hero of the story who might be one pe- person or a group of people or even an institution confronts these powerful and nefarious forces against the odds overthrows them and restores order to the land now that's This story comes up again and again and again in different permutations throughout political and religious history. And it seems to be the one we're listening for. We're we're looking out for that narrative framework to say, does this make narrative sense? Are we detecting narrative fidelity here? And when, when we hear a restoration story which resonates with our desires or concerns, then we are prepared to latch onto it. But without that restoration story, we speak helplessly. And that's where we are at the moment, spinning around helplessly. John Maynard Keynes sat down and wrote his general theory, which was a very powerful restoration story, explaining how we could get out of the mess which we were in. And that dominated politics for for many years after, until the late 1970s. Then when that fell apart, um, the neoliberals had been working on their restoration story for the past 40 years, and they came forward and said, here, we've got the answer. Here it is already made on a plate. And people said, oh, thanks very much. And everyone had previously been a Keynesian, they were neoliberal. It became the dominant narrative and it governed political life and still does. In 2008, when neoliberalism fell apart, spectacularly in the financial crash, we came forward with nothing. We had nothing at all. We had not prepared a different restoration story and we still have not. And that's why we are completely failing to gain political traction. So what I'm saying is that we need to embed the efforts of the kind that you're talking about, all of which are totally noble and worthy efforts, to, you know, to stop coal mining, to stop fracking, to keep it in the ground, to, to fight um, the proposals of government 
governments and corporations, we have to embed those efforts within a highly effective restoration story, which tells us who we are, where we are, and where we need to go. That's what we've been lacking, and that's what I've been trying to produce. And you do it very well. You remind us in your book, Out of the Wreckage, that humans have a tendency to stand together against a threat, and that we are an altruistic species. Why do you think, why did you need to remind us of this? Mm. Well, it was uh, very interesting. I, I, I sort of almost stumbled across this. I, I, my previous project was an album which I wrote with the wonderful musician Ewan McLennan called Breaking the Spell of Loneliness. And what I wanted to find out was why loneliness hurts us so much. Why, why do we need other people to the extent we do? And so I started um, reading papers in neuroscience, in psychology, in anthropology, in evolutionary biology, and I was absolutely flabbergasted that everywhere I looked, the same conclusion came up that human beings are, in the words of a journal, a psychology journal paper, spectacularly unusual by comparison to other animals. In terms of our altruism, we are the extreme biological outlier, but amazingly altruistic, empathetic, kind and community-minded. Unfortunately, we get dominated by people who don't share those values. You know, people like Donald Trump, the psychopaths dominate. Um, they're in a very small minority, but in one political or corporate system after another, they come to the top, and we're in this very unusual position of altruism. I know people who have taken refugees into their homes and treat them as family members. My Dutch mother-in-law's family took in a six-year-old Jewish boy during the German occupation and kept him in their house for two years, hid him in their house and um, looked after him. The next-door house was occupied by the German commandant. The street was thick with soldiers and officials. They would all have been deported to Auschwitz and murdered if they'd been caught. And yet there are thousands of families doing the same thing. What we do is, is to uh, totally unusual in the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, and, and yet we just take it for granted. Okay, well, I'd like to, the next question, let's come back to systems. What about socialism? When Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders said they were socialists, the younger generation in UK and USA got massively behind them. But the 21st century crisis is about environmental collapse. And how are we going to reverse that, even with socialism, if governments still promise growth? Well, that's the big problem, isn't it? That um, the only answer which people have provided to the collapse of neoliberalism is to return to 20th century Keynesianism. And the problem is that, you know, while it was a highly effective strategy in the 20th century, Keynesianism relies on stimulus spending to sustain economic growth. And it is simply not an appropriate approach during the 20th, 21st century. We've already hit the environmental buffers. We've broken through many of the crucial planetary boundaries. And now we're saying, well, we want to sustain 3% growth, which means a doubling every 24 years. So we want double this. Oh, and then double that again. So that's four times. And then again, eight times, 16 times, 32 times. Uh, we, we've already reached the limits. We've already exceeded the limits. We can't do it. There's no capacity to do that. And so what we see as a measure of progress, GDP, is a measure of our progress over a cliff. And we need a wholly new approach. We need an economics which is not based on growth, but based on well-being, and well-being of both people and planet. We need a politics which is built around those aims. And, you know, much as I feel there's a lot to 
we learnt from Corbyn's Labour Party and from Bernie Sanders's bid, um, I, I think they're absolutely crucial, and I think we, you know, could see some really important changes coming about. What we need is a root and branch reconsideration of our deep political aims. Um, and you know, to their credit, Labour in the UK is is interested in this, and they they are doing some really deep scoping about what change might look like, and asking the right questions at the moment, and bringing in the right people to talk to them. Let this leads us to the underpinning of your book, which is about I think you have a desire to restore fellowship, and the values that will help us survive. So tell us about the 1890s, uh, the Clarion and Cinderella clubs. And could you see uh, us organising like that nowadays, especially to reconnect city people with nature? Yes. Well, it's, it's quite interesting that you know, when we look back to the origins of the Labour Party in, in the UK, it was a, a quite different thing to anything that had really existed before. We, we think of it as being this sort of homogenous grey mass of, of, of flat caps and industrial workforces all doing the same thing and very sort of top-down and state-oriented. But actually it wasn't like that at all. It was um, There was a very strong reason that this had to be built from the community up and not just in the workplace, but at home as well. And, and as a result, a load of very active and interesting community organisations like these clarinet clubs and Dorella clubs which um, were designed to bring people to get them talking, crucial role of a participatory culture in political renewal, in, in kick-starting community life. And so what I've done is to look at how all this could be sort of mobilised into a politics of belonging. And there's a very interesting study written by the London Borough of Lambeth, a sort of 400-page study looking at community projects around the world and seeing what works and what doesn't. And they say, you know, you need to have this sort of some complex specialist ones, but you also need to have very simple, low-commitment, low-threshold activities, such as eating together. You know the etymology of the word companion? It's companis, with bread. Um, good fellowship rests on eating together and it seems to be a habit that we've lost but you get the community together to have sort of big meals reviving the commons yes i think a good example is community radio this uh, um, studio that i'm in here is skid row and the one in melbourne is called radio 3cr and there's so many yeah. groups of people there who use that one little studio and get together and they often eat together. You see people having a sort of Armenian people's supper one night and then other people from other, you know, all the ethnic uh, broadcasts happen at night. I love that. And it's such a well-run thing with no sort of hierarchy. There doesn't need to be any top-down management of all that. It just seems that people just get on and do well. But you mentioned a model that I liked very much in Rotterdam, and I thought they yeah. were really consciously building the community there. And I wondered how does extending the public space create the foundations for a low-carbon city? Well, we can't get anywhere in the long term without ending the public space unless we get people working together with a shared sense of purpose we're just constantly going to be swimming against the tide because in our current atomized society where people have been told that they're social to fight like stray dogs over a dustbin because competition and extreme individualism are the greatest virtues with the idea of um collectively deciding to pursue the common good just it just doesn't fit comfortably with that at all 
So we have to reset. We have to recognize that we are the supremely social mammal as well as being the supremely altruistic one. We are more socially minded than any other mammal with the possible exception of the naked mole rat. But I won't go into that now. And so until we start acting on that, the idea of acting with common purpose, which might be against our immediate individual self-interest in some cases, like, you know, if you want to take your kids to school and it's cold, you might want to do it in your in your big ute. But actually, if you can do it on your bicycle, that's a better thing to do. But you, you're not going to do that unless you feel that other people are doing that. And that this is part of to those children and humanity in general. Yes. Um, so we have to transcend the self-interest that we're pushed into. You know, it's the atomization of the neoliberal world in which we live uh, is absolutely deadly to working together for the common good. And of course, that's the point. We're supposed not to work together. Okay, so building communities will strengthen the bonds of belonging and stop all that loneliness and we'll learn more about cooperation. I love that and there are many models of it already, but... Especially in, in poorer countries, I see that. I spoke to someone from Bangladesh, for example, and they're coping with refugees coming in from Myanmar as well as her one third of their country being underwater and, and showing amazing entrepreneurship and readiness to cope. You know, like they are leading, I think. I interviewed someone that was marvellous. But look, all of that is good. But our own, for us, you know, in these rich countries who have become so atomized and selfish in a way, our only participation with government is as protesters. And I've been to lots of hearings, you know, where you have scientists get up and talk about wetlands that must be preserved because those migratory birds just have to come there and then the, the coal coal company wants to put their loader there and, and, and they win. Or Aboriginal people want a certain le- land preserved because it's very sacred to them and Rio Tinto comes in and just has lunch with the Premier and soon the law is changed so that Rio Tinto gets its way and I just feel it's all theatre, all these uh, times when we're consulted, the community's consulted, uh, it's just theatre. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I wondered ha- uh, about participation. How can stu- citizens have the same participation or even a better in terms of their numbers as in policy making as the billionaires do? Well, this is where we have to have regime change. We have to have governments which are actually going to meet our needs rather than work against them. And the most exciting step towards this is what happened, I feel, during the Bernie Sanders campaign last year in the United States. Um, because they designed this, it was a giant live experiment, the campaign really, and, and during it, they stumbled upon this new strategy. They really only cracked the model about four weeks before the end of the nomination process, and they had the most spectacular results. And basically, if they got it a few weeks earlier, they would have swept the nomination and swept the presidency. The, the momentum was just extraordinary that they were achieving. And I, I read a book by a couple of the Sanders organisers called Rules for Revolutionaries, and having read that, I thought, ooh, we could do the same in, in this country, in the UK. And so when Theresa May announced the election here, I made a little video for the government. You know, if Labour adopted these big organising techniques that the Sanders campaign devised, yes. um, they could just about clinch this election. And, yeah, the, the level of vituperation and mockery off the scale. And I thought, oh, God, why did I make that video? You know, what a stupid thing to say. We talk about wishful thinking. Well, little did I know that even as I was making it, they were bringing over two of Bernie Sanders' organisers and working through the Labour grassroots and through the momentum organization 
to roll out that big organised model. And the result was the bigger political surprise in British democratic history, where a situation that seemed completely hopeless for Labour turned the whole situation around, and now we've got a lame-duck government and a massive resurgent Labour Party, which is poised to, to take back power. So it's, it's a really thrilling example of how even in a very, very short period you can use this tool. All right, George, just to finish, I've got something on a different note. I'd like to read you something from an Iranian journalist who is presently trapped in limbo in one of Australia's immigration detention places on Manus Island, Papua New Guinea. And I think it shows that sometimes an extreme situation produces the best in humanity, which fits in with the theme of your book. And I feel there's a lesson here to be learned. And after I read that little extract, I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about the bigger picture for climate refugees. So I'll just read it to his name, Beruz Bushani. He says, uh, this was read out at a rally on Sunday and those people are still in in detention. Uh, Our resistance had a broader purpose. It was to be a model and present a new way for humanity. We wanted to show how humans have this capacity to be kind and peaceful and care about humanity even in a harsh situation, which, to tell you, they've been there over four years, some of them. No no outcome on the horizon at all. And then he says, When the police came in, it was a defeat for them because they could not see how we were resisting peacefully for all humanity. They could not endure that people in Australia and around the world are hearing our voice. And I'd like you to, to you know, they're not, those are not climate refugees necessarily, but after, could, could you comment on the new system that we need to in fact accommodate the people that climate change is going to be pushing out on the international level? <laughs> facing a global crisis here as hundreds of millions of people are being displaced and these refugees are, are treated by us as the enemy and we're the perpetrators, we're the people who've created this climate breakdown and are forced people to leave their homes, then treat them like some sort of great threat which we have to shut out at all costs and we're just going to need a whole different attitude to people who are displaced and this is why It's essential to root that politics in the better aspects of our nature, in these remarkable findings about who we really are. And then we become far more welcoming to people being displaced. We become far more welcoming to people who we might not immediately perceive as being exactly like us. Yes, fantastic. Thank you so much, George. So that was a talk with George Monbiot, the English author who wrote Out of the Wreckage, his new Politics for an Age of Crisis. I'm sorry, listeners, for some of the sound quality there. That was the very best I could do, and I had to try George's patience quite a lot by doing it several times over uh, from England by Skype. But really, with the cooperation of uh, 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row up here in Sydney, we have managed to bring you George Monbiot, and I hope you find it's very valuable and that you read his book, Out of the Wreckage, which is available now, a start on the path of a new type of thinking. Thank you very much to George Monbiot and the his publishers who helped helped us get this program to air. Thanks also to Chad and Chris in Sydney and Leanne and Gab and Andy in Melbourne who helped me get this Skype interview to you. I'm sure we'll get better at it, that the quality is not so good, but I hope you really persevere with it and enjoy it. 
Thanks for joining us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. A uh, big thank you to George Mombio and Tina Fawcett, and thanks for the people at Radio Skid Row and 3CR who helped make these Skype interviews possible. Read the book Out of the Wreckage and check out Tina Fawcett's website about insulating your home. That's at www.howtoeco-renovateyourhome-reducing-your-carbon-footprint. It is Radio Fun Time at 3CR, so if you'd like to donate, get online at 3cr.org.au or you can call the station at 9419-8377. Keep listening to Radical Radio. I'll go out on a bit of music and then we'll have Refugee Radio. You're listening to 3CR. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. Bye for now. This is the day, 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 day.